0: Hello, my peers, and welcome to another episode of the Peers Project Podcast. Today's guest is yet another inspiring individual who started her business at just 16 years old. She founded Little Dreamers Australia, a non-for-profit that supports the siblings of sick children and young carers. In 2017, she received the Queen's Young Leader Award and this year did their first TEDx Talk. So who is this phenomenal millennial I'm talking about? Well her name is Madeline Butchner. I was fortunate to have the opportunity to sit down and speak with Maddie here in Melbourne several months ago and learn about her story and how she managed to channel her feelings of loneliness and isolation into something that has now changed over 4,000 families lives across Australia. In today's episode, Maddie and I go deep. You know, we talk about the personal and business challenges she's experienced over the last nine years and how this has shaped her into the leader that she is today. We also discuss in depth her experience of meeting with the royal family. So, without further ado, here is my conversation with Maddie Butchner. Maddie. Welcome to The Peers Project. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Of course. So you and I met uh, through my sister, actually, um, who helps out with your awesome company. And when she told me about you and the phenomenal work you are doing, um, I knew I had to to come and interview you. And it's been a long time coming, I have to say. (laughs) Um, And so I'm I'm very excited uh, for today's chat.
1: I'm really excited. This, your sister is phenomenal, so I'm, I'm excited to, ha- to have her on board and to be here with you and keep it in the family, i say.
0: <laughs> Keeping it in the family. I love it. Great. So before we dive into you and your work, I want to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing, and that is, where did you grow up and how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life, in your career so far?
1: So I grew up in Melbourne in Australia and I grew up as one of two kids, two beautiful parents. They started dating when they were 16 and they got married at 21 and kind of picture perfect lifestyle you would think uh, except for the fact that when I was really young and when my brother was born, he's about two and a half years younger than me, uh, he was going into into hospital about eight to ten times a year. So from six months old he was diagnosed with asthma, then it went on to be encephalitis, epilepsy, fibromyalgia, whooping cough. Um, pneumonia, chickenpox that went to his lungs, he's allergic to dairy, egg, soy, lavender, kiwi fruits, walnuts and wool. Um, oh. <laughs> and so growing up it was really hard having my brother in and out of hospital. I would grow up in hospitals pretty much. I knew all the nurses, I knew all the doctors, I knew the way to get extra snacks, I knew how to work my way around the child's playroom at the hospital and, um, and all that sort of stuff and I think growing up that, that made me a very different Child. It made me a very different young person. I grew up a lot at my grandparents' house because whenever my brother would go into hospital, you'd get taken to your grandparents because it would be too disruptive to be at home. Uh, which means I've got a very special relationship with my grandparents. Um, and then when I was 14, my mum was diagnosed with breast cancer. So um, I was very used to what it was like caring for my brother with my mum and my dad's help. But all of a sudden, mum wasn't able to care for my brother, let alone care for herself. So my dad took on a very hands-on caring role with my mum. I took on a very hands-on caring role with my brother. Um, we powered on and we got through mum's 11 years in remission this year, which is really How exciting. <laughs> um but yeah, it was really difficult growing up. So it kind of, I, I grew up a lot faster than a lot of other kids my age. And I had to take on a lot of responsibility that I guess other children, I think shouldn't have to, but a lot of kids do.
0: Mm. Yeah, wow. I mean, when you say, you know, I've read your story before, but when you when you say it, you know, and, and that whole goal, it really, it is quite confronting, it's quite, you know, intense. So and talk to us a bit about those early days where you were, you know, in the hospital with your brother and you were just in and out. And, you know, what, as a child, like, did you know what was going on?
1: You, you know what's going on. I mean, you know that someone's really sick, but what you don't know is why it feels like nobody cares about you. Yeah. So there's obviously a lot of a lot of love for your parents people are cooking meals for them they're doing their washing we had people come over and would clean the house and things like that while my brother was in hospital because mum would stay in hospital with him my dad would be at home by himself so it was really hard when you've got another young child to, to manage all of that and my grandparents would drop me to school they would pick me up after school we'd go to the hospital we used to make these really cool I don't know what you call them but they're like paint things that stick up on windows and the the, the light shines through them yeah, I
0: know Yeah, so we used to make
1: a lot of those in the hospitals and, and things like that so um we had little rituals that we would do that were hospital rituals I knew how to pack my brother's hospital bag I knew how to pour out his medicine I knew how to set up the asthma pump and how to call an ambulance when we needed to and I knew what would happen if I knew my brother was going to hospital what I needed to pack as well because I would obviously be packing to go to my grandparents so growing up it was it was different no two days were ever the same I would go to school one day thinking that everything was fine and in the afternoon my brother would be going to hospital and there was no real continuity or, or anything like that when I was growing up so I think that I've gotten very good at living with no structure in my <laughs> life um and it kind of learning on the go and I mean you're never taught how to pour out someone's medicine or anything it's just kind of for some reason something that you innately know how to do or, or you know how to work out.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So backing up to when you said, you know, you felt like no one really cared about you, lots of things was happening with your brother and you were just, it was all on him. I mean, how does a, you know, an eight, a 12, a 14 year old deal with that? You know, how did you, you deal with it?
1: Um, I don't think I dealt with it very well. I used to run away from home a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I would only run to my uncles or I would... Like, I wasn't going very far, but for some reason I was never wearing shoes. I I don't know why not. (laughs) Kind of making... Trying to make that statement, you just leave the house without shoes on. Mm. Um, But I used to run away from home a lot. I used to lie and make up stories a lot. I was kind of craving attention and I was crying out for the need to get some help. I think that's why I am so close with my grandparents because they... When I used to go to their house while my brother was in hospital, I was all they had. Like... 100% their 100% of their attention was on me and it felt so special so kind of it was special for me. They used to give me extra dessert. I used to have a television in my room. It was like this really cool thing to be able to go and stay at their place. And my grandma always used to say that if you put your head in the middle of the pillow when you go to sleep, everything will be okay when you wake up. Um so I didn't deal with it very well. I have I had a great group of friends. I have a very close-knit extended family, which I think helped. But I've grown up with anxiety, really bad anxiety waking up not knowing what's going to happen having nightmares very I'm used to be very clingy to my family I still am to an extent I love spending time at home and with my family because it's kind of safe that way I guess mm-hmm.
0: so you know you went from pretty much being brought up by your grandparents at one stage you know and you you grew that bond and having to deal with all these emotions and you know anxiety all of these things that were forever changing in your life what do you think what do you think was one of the a main thing that you've about yourself during this time?
1: That you can kind of get through anything. Um, I think it's important that some things may seem really tough and um, they may seem hard and impossible whether it's within the health sphere or outside of it but you can kind of get through anything and you can kind of wing it and work your way through it because you, sometimes you just have to.
0: Mm. What I find so fascinating about your story is that you literally did just wing it and go stuff, and I'm going to do something about this, as opposed to most kids at 16 probably would have gone, you know, the other way. But you said, no, I'm going to do something about this problem. Talk to us a bit about the, the, those initial thoughts about creating Little Dreamers during this time.
1: So when I was nine years old, I turned to my best friend at the time and I said to her, "How come nobody cares about me?" And I think it was a really interesting thought to have when I was nine. Um, you're going through a stage where you should be a really selfish child. Like, you're a young person, you're allowed to be selfish, it's your childhood, you're allowed to think that the world revolves around you. Um, and here I was turning to my friend Beck and saying, how come nobody cares about me? And I used to also state at her, her place quite a lot growing up. Um, and so the two of us... Uh, paired with another friend of ours, Ellie, and we decided to start running fundraising events. I was supported by an organisation called CareNet, which isn't around anymore, but it was kind of like a Big Brother Big Sister program. So I had we called them co-pilots. Um, so I had a co-pilot. Her name was Angie, um, and she used to come over. I can't remember how often, but we she helped me with my homework. She spent time with me, and she, we made a mosaic mirror and things like that. And um, and so we founded the CareNet Kids Club. Uh, me, Ellie, and Beck when we were nine years old, and we ran our first event um, in 2002. It was a party at the Plaster Funhouse in Malvern in Australia, in Melbourne, and um, we had 50 people come down, and we raised $500, and uh, Peter Mitchell, the newsreader, came. It was really cool, and that was kind of the beginning. From there, it felt like people started seeing me, Um, so it was kind of a little bit of a selfish thing. I think people started seeing me and wanting to be somewhere because I was running something Um, and I realised I was really good at it and so I kept doing it. So Ellie Beck and I ran a couple of fundraisers. We did a movie night. We did a children's fashion parade. Toddie Goldsmith, the, the '80s singer, um, was the MC of our very first um, fashion parade. We had um, a sports clinic with the Harlem Globetrotters, um, and and we did some really cool things. And then we decided we didn't just want to support CareNet. We didn't just want to support the siblings of sick kids, which is what CareNet was all about. And we started, um, we became the Kids Club. It was KIDZ, Kids Club, and it stood for Caring, Independent, Dedicated Siblings, Caring with a K. Because it was oh, the early remember. 2000s and that's what you did. <laughs> um, so um, yeah. we then, um, we ran another fashion parade with Aaron Hamill, who's an Australian rules footballer, not anymore, but he was, um, was the MC of our second fashion parade, raising money for an organisation called Very Special Kids, which is like a respite facility here in, in Melbourne in Australia. And um, we ran, we funded their very first siblings camp, as part of very special kids, and then we ran one for um, children from refugee families, um, and we kept doing that for a few years. And then, and then my mum got sick, and then it all changed. And we, I was very lost. I didn't realise why nobody else had gone through similar experiences. Why had no one else seen their mum's hair fall out, and why had um, my my very first boyfriend um, broke up with me the day my mum came home from her first round of chemotherapy, oh. and I remember sitting on the floor of her bedroom, um, going in. She was lying in bed and being so upset, but also she didn't really have the energy to talk to you. Meant to have your mum in those situations, so um, it was things like why did no one, why was there no one else in my life who had gone through that? And so I started, I jumped on Dr. Google, obviously not recommended, um, and started Googling and I found that there was one in 10 young people in the UK, it was a UK stat, one in 10 young people had a parent, brother or sister with a serious illness or disability and they were caring for them. And I was like, well, why did I not know that? So at the age of 15, uh, Becca and I, the nine-year-old that I started the Canet Kids Club with, um, Becca and I started writing a business plan for what is now Little Dreamers Australia. We went through a program called Youth Inspire, which doesn't exist anymore, but it was kind of an accelerator program for how can young people change the world. We put together Little Dreamers with another guy named Ash. Um, We presented it at a comedy club in Melbourne in Australia and we launched Little Dreamers on a stage with um, a comedian and an actor and um, it was just an idea at that stage. We didn't win. There was $500 up for grabs and we didn't win because we were too established. But it still grinds my gears because the people who did we never went and did anything. <sighs> yeah, I don't like yeah. it.
0: No, mm. thank you. No.
1: Um, <laughs> but we had a business plan. So we um, planned a launch event for the 16th of May in 2009. We had a couple of local Australian celebrities David Campbell and Molly Meldrum launched Little Dreamers at um, a cocktail party in Melbourne and we had no idea what it would be like we had no idea what we were doing and all of a sudden we had money six thousand dollars of money and we launched Little Dreamers and we started running an organization that's now nine years later here we are
0: (laughs) your story is It's honestly, it's mind-blowing. It's the most fascinating thing just hearing all of that in one go, in one gulp. So many questions come out of that, obviously. <laughs> I think we'll backtrack a little bit to, I think something that really fascinated me with was that even right at the beginning when you were the kids that really early, that when you were nine years old and it was just the three of you coming up with ideas, this idea to do fundraising events, you still managed to make like celebrities come and MC like Tolly Gold, like, Goldsmith, all these people who were just, you know, in Australia and even, you know, in the, in the world, they're like quite recognize people how does a nine-year-old convince these type of celebrity status people to get on board their cause
1: um a lot of that is probably to our parents when Mm. we were nine Um, (laughs) I actually last night I found a book of all of our old flyers and they all had my mum's phone number on them (laughs) then again you're nine you don't really have a mobile phone (laughs) um but um you think nine-year-olds like they're cute. People yeah. want to do things for them. And I think if you've got a nine-year-old who wants to change the world, um, I mean, I found an article that is up in our office, which is from when we were 10, we ran a movie night and we said that we wanted to raise money to launch a platform called Sibs, which was an online platform to connect siblings and young carers to each other. That was what 15 years ago and this year we launched the dreamers hub which is an online peer support platform to connect young carers so things have taken a really long time but our mission and my passion has never wavered or changed and I think that I tried a lot of things growing up I went to university I actually tried two different degrees before I figured out what I wanted to do but little dreams has kind of grown up with me or I've grown up with the organization and I think that's really special Mm.
0: I think what's so fascinating is the fact that it was you who started it it's pretty much it's like it's just a little another part of you you know what I mean I think that seeing that progression seeing as you've grown up you've seen other companies grown and I think that's yeah Yeah, wow. Okay. So so I'm just trying to digest all of this awesomeness. Okay. So there's another thing that really caught my attention when you said that you were finally able to be seen when you were doing these events. You know, you felt for so long that, you know, you just weren't. You were in the shadows. I mean, only when you were with your grandparents did you feel like, okay, people are recognizing me. Was that the reason why you continued to, to, to do them in those early ages, you know, in, the, in that early age? Was it that or was there something else as well that came along with it? Like, what was the feeling as you continued to run these events?
1: I think I felt special. Mm. I felt like people, I got to give speeches, I got to give, I got to stand on a stage and, and people, I mean, they may have been talking to other people, but their intention was in theory on me. Um... And it sounds a little selfish, but it was kind of what I... Yeah, I felt special. And then I started to realise that we were changing lives. Mm. So then it wasn't just about me feeling special anymore. It was like, crap, we're actually doing something that changes people's lives. And then it was more about that. But I think to begin with, it was all about, hey, I'm a 10-year-old. Mm. I haven't really had this attention on me in the past, but I'm getting it now. Whether it's who it's from, it doesn't really matter. Um, We got a lot of media attention when we were younger as well, which was kind of fun. I mean, being on Today Tonight and on on Channel 7 and on the TV and on those night shows when you're younger, it's kind of fun. (laughs)
0: I can only imagine. Wow. Okay. So, and I think that that's a really good point for everyone to, you know, for us to all take in that idea of regardless of why you start it, or why you start that thing or why you pursue some type of passion, even if it is for self reasons to start off with, regardless, at least you're acting, at least you're doing something. You know, I think that's something that so many of us hesitate to take that step, to do to even do something um, because we may think, or oh, is this a self-restriction or am I going to get judged? Did you ever have a level of I'm being judged for this or was it never like that for you?
1: It was a lot like that when I was growing up because I wasn't a normal child. I Not only was I a young carer and a special sibling, but I was running a non or an organisation and running fundraising events and I got bullied bad for it, like really badly. I was. I ended up moving schools when I was... 14 because I was so badly bullied and I think that it wasn't only about the fact that I was running an organisation but it was kind of about that I I wasn't afraid of what people thought of me I wasn't afraid to be myself and I I remember one time I turned up to school it was casual day at school I was in uh, I was 14 and I turned up wearing tracksuit pants and like a cute little t-shirt I can't remember what it, it had a slogan on it but I like I was comfortable mm. but like at the same time I wasn't like I got so badly bullied because I decided to wear tracksuit pants to school and it was simply because I wanted to and because I didn't really care I mean it was casual day I'm not gonna turn up in like well, I don't know in like a fancy dress <laughs> high outfit. heels yeah high <laughs> heels but um but I, I just I was never I never really cared what people thought of me and and that, and I wasn't afraid to say what I thought because me saying what I thought had already gotten us so far into a fundraising space and into raising money and changing lives that I just thought that's how I should be as a person. And that's who I am now. I'm, I'm not afraid to say what I think and stand up for what I believe, but that got me in a lot of trouble when I was younger.
0: Mm. So how did you push through that? How did you overcome?
1: I found the right friends. I think that it, it. I went through a lot of difficult times where I was. I didn't really feel like I had a lot of friends, but you find people who you surround yourself with who are the right people I think my mom always used to tell me to act like a duck and let the water kind of slide off my back like <laughs> things like that and and that when you find the right people to be with you'll know and and it will get you'll get that feeling in your in your heart and you'll get that feeling around you where you found your people and I think it's really important you may not find those people in high school and that's okay um, I had a very close group of friends in high school um, but I don't know you just of grow up. And as as you grow up, if you're true to what you believe and true to who you are, then it will eventually fall into place.
0: Mm. Love it. Okay. And I think what's so fascinating about what you're doing now is the fact that you have built a tribe. So you talk about this idea that your tribe was what got you through those tough times and now it's what's getting ev- everyone else through, you know, the tough times they're going through. So talk to me a little bit about the progression of Little Dreamers from 16, maybe through to like early, your early 20s. I know you're only still... Early 20s.
1: <laughs> you like me. Mid, mid 20s. Yeah,
0: mid 20s. There you go. <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, talk to me a bit about that tribe building.
1: So we started off with one program. When we launched in 2009, we had one program. It was a dream experience program, a lot like Make-A-Wish, um, where we give young carers the opportunity to do something that they've always wanted to do. This might be um, meeting a celebrity, getting concert tickets, it might be going on a girl's day out, meeting your favourite sports person, who knows. And we kind of started from there because my brother got a starlight wish. Um, he got to swim with the dolphins in, in Monkey Mire in Perth in Australia and we all got to go but the focus was on him and that was amazing and it's what he needed and it was a great family trip to one of the most beautiful places in the world I think Um, But so that's what we started with and and our very first dream experience we ever granted was um, two girls, they went by limo to a hotel it was a pink Hummer limo Uh. Um, And they had this big lunch with a whole bunch of their friends at this really fancy hotel and then they stayed a night at the hotel and that's what they wanted to do. Um, And it wasn't long after we granted the dream that their brother actually passed away. And we got a lot of feedback from their family about how much that actually helped them to get through those final couple of weeks. So we did that for the first couple of years and that's all we did. Um, And it was probably, I was probably in my early 20s when we started our next Thing. I mean, you think 16, you're still going through high school. Like I had to sit my end of year, my end of year exams, and like things kind of get in the way. So it's, it kind of started off quite slowly, um, <laughs> and then, um, and then we, the next thing we did was launch a, a Young Carers Festival. So um, I think the first one was 2013. I think 2013, 2014. Um, And we had 150 families come down um, and we just celebrated young carers. And then from there, we launched a holiday program. We kept doing our festival. Last year, we had 700 families at our festival. So it kind of just grew one after the the other. And then we realised that we wanted to do more. A lot of the things we were offering were just short-term support. And short-term support is great for what it's made for, but we wanted to do more. And so then we built programs to do more and we built everything off conversations with families and with young carers and what did they want and what do they need and rather than us just saying well we we think we should do this mm. so we consulted with them we made things work and now we're working with um this year it should be about 4000 kids
0: Wow. These stats just blow my mind. Um, So I want to back up to to this idea of, okay, I want to do this and then it actually translates into something. So, you know, so many of us, you know, our peers out there listening probably have these thoughts of, well, I've got this cause that I really care about. I've got this passion. I really, you know, I want to pursue it. But how do I get 150 people to rock up to one of my events do you know what I mean like I don't have marketing dollars I don't have this what would be your advice to our peers out there listening around getting something like translating it from an idea to it's actually happening
1: Think outside the box. So think about things that don't cost money. Our festival, the first one that we ran, we spent nothing on advertising. We got um, a real estate agent that was happy to put up some real estate boards for us. I downloaded a really ugly template off a design website and designed my own flyer. It was awful, but (laughs) it worked. Um, We we jumped on the radio we did a few interviews which was all free advertising um we posted on social media but didn't put any money behind it so that didn't cost we li- i don't think we spent a single dollar on marketing and we contacted organizations that already had the families so we worked with organizations like very special kids who had that network of families and then they promoted it to their families so We went to people who already had the networks who were working with the person with the disability or the illness or the addiction, and we said, hey, we've got something extra to offer your families. Bring them along. And bring them along for free. I actually think the only thing that cost us was the sausage sizzle.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I hope everyone's taking notes on this. This is (laughs) brilliant stuff. love it. Okay, great. So then you have obviously you've had the progression of you you're starting to run more programs in a long term and whatnot talk to me a bit more about how the the team how your your business obviously it was like it was you and and then your friend but how did you navigate the building of your actual business
1: so um becca resigned from little dreamers in 2012 which i'm not gonna lie felt a bit like a breakup we're very good friends still and i'm very lucky for that but i think There was like a good couple of days where I didn't get out of bed. Um, And I was really upset and I was like, how am I going to do this without Becca? We've been doing this since we were nine. We've been doing this for 10 years together. How are we going to do this? What are we going to do? And Becca is still very involved with Little Dreamers. We did a big promotional video earlier this year that she came in and we filmed her and she told her part of the story, which was amazing. Um, And... You kind of, I kind of just got back on my feet and you kind of had to and found a great team of volunteers and, and went through a lot of iterations of our team. You find that some people come on and they don't work and when you're volunteering, people don't stick around and it's hard and, and you take it very personally as a founder because you're like, why aren't people feeling as passionate as I am? Why aren't people getting it? Um, and it wasn't until kind of the beginning of 2017 maybe end of 2016 where I was like I can't do this by myself anymore and we actually found a very small amount of money in the budget and I paid someone to coordinate our holiday program and I was like I just can't I can't make it work I'm working part-time I'm trying to fit Little Dreamers in it was hard and then throughout 2017 throughout the first half I was um, working part-time I started off three days a week at a marketing agency and then ended up going four days a week with one day a week from home in quotation mark because it was actually from the Little Dreamers office (laughs) Um, with one day free my Wednesday was free and I spent Wednesdays on Little Dreamers and um, at the same time I was studying my master's in advertising so I was going to class every night and I was working and I was doing Little Dreamers around the clock and I wasn't sleeping and I was performing poorly at my work at Little Dreamers at my uni stuff I was everything started to fall apart. And I got really sick and I remember there was one day where I literally couldn't get out of bed. It was terrifying. I have never felt like that. It wasn't just a, I'm so tired, I can't get out of bed. It was, I couldn't get my body out of bed and my mind was awake, but my body was like, nope, I'm just not, I'm just not working for you today. And it was the scariest moment that I've ever had. It kind of felt like a lot of people have described chronic fatigue. It felt like the beginning of that. And I was like, what am I doing to my body? I'm 24 years old like what is going on Um, and I called in sick for a couple of days and I literally just slept Um, and I was very lucky that in May 2017 I pitched to a group of families up in, in Sydney in Australia for some funding for our holiday program and they turned around to me and they said how much would it cost for you to quit your job Wow. And I'm very lucky because I know that doesn't happen very often. Um, And I gave them some ridiculously low number. (laughs) Um, And I came home and my mom said, you are not quitting your job for that amount of money. Um, And I was very lucky that they called me the next day. I was sitting at my desk at my marketing job. And they said, we would like to give you a a certain amount of funding and would like for, for it to go to paying your salary. Wow. And I kind of sat on it. It was like a dream come true, but it was a dream come true where I was like, am I the right person to run my business full-time? Do I have the skills that I, that we need? Should I be bringing someone else in? And it was just before, it was about two weeks before I was going away um, to speak at a conference in Sweden and then to do a big leadership program in um, England last year. And I sat through, I was away for, I think it was four weeks or something, and I sat through the entire time I was away trying to struggle with the fact that am I the right person, am I not? I didn't really know what to do there Um, and I came it was the last couple of days of the program in England and I sat down with a friend of mine and he said to me Maddie you just need to take the leap you just need to do it Um, and I came home the day I got home on a Monday or a Sunday or something the day I went back into work the next day I quit my job and I just kind of jumped into it head on and um, the amount of growth we've seen since I took that leap has been huge and if I could have taken it earlier, who knows where we would have been now, but I'm so incredibly happy that I did. It was terrifying. Um, Being your own boss is scary. And like I was calling my mum four or five times a day because you get so used to having someone there that you can ask questions to. And all of a sudden you're the boss and you've got no one you can ask questions to. And your sister on my board doesn't want me calling her five (laughs) times a day. So I was calling my mum and it got to a point where my mum had to sit me down and she'd be like, Maddie, I'm at work. Like you can't be calling me, asking me questions about should you do this or should you set something up this way? And you kind of, you have to sink into the uncomfortable, which is scary, but I mean, it's gotten us really far in the past sort of 12 months and I'm very lucky. So it's been just over 12 months now since I've been working in Little Dreamers full-time.
0: Wow. Wow. I think there's so much to take away from that. I think the first part is, is that there's this almost stereotypical view of what entrepreneurship or running your own business, being your boss babes or whatever they call them, it is like, you know, and, and so many of us, you know, we see it on Instagram. We say, be your own boss, all of this stuff, lots of promotion. And in some ways it's, um, in some ways it's you know, it's very empowering, you know, these women taking these leadership roles and whatnot. And in other ways, it's it's the things that they don't talk about, things that we don't see. Like, it's actually petrifying being the only one in the office, you know, having everything on your plate. Talk to us a bit about the the struggle. What made you decide to actually go, yes, I'm going to take the leap? I know you said, you had the conversation with your friend, but what was going through your mind during that time? And then secondly, how were you able to just be the boss? You know, how did you go from that, calling your mum to that?
1: I think that I had, had it drummed into me so hard that I should have a proper job. I'm a marketing and advertising student and by trade within university they tell you become an intern, get a grad position, work your way up, become a marketing executive, a head of brand. Um, and I'd had it drummed into me so hard that I needed that title. Mm. I needed that kind of job. Um, and so it was really hard for me to make that decision to step out of what was expected of me and what I was told that I needed to be and what I needed to do and kind of just trust the process a little bit. So... I, th- I thought I just needed to give it a go. I mean, if it failed, it failed. It, I could have jumped straight back in. I was a great student. I had great previous job. I had a great resume. I could have just... I mean, it would have been hard for me to get another job, but I was 24. Why not risk it? I mean, it's not like I had a house or a family to support. I could just jump into it, um, and I'm very lucky for that. And when it came to being the boss, I also think it's just the same. You kind of just need to... You make mistakes, and... You, Jan Owen from the Foundation for Young Australians she calls it flurning which is failure through learning, um, and and you just need to make those mistakes. And if you don't make mistakes, you're never going to learn from them. And um, you make mistakes all the time. I've made hiring mistakes with employees. I've made business mistakes. I've paid for things I probably shouldn't have been paying for because we probably could have gotten them cheaper or for free. And you just you kind of just have to learn as you go. And if you don't make mistakes you're going to think you're invincible and one day something else is going to really hit you on the head and then it's going to be worse than if you'd made all the little mistakes along the way and now I've got a phenomenal team of women who are working around me I've got an incredible board who is happy for me to make a few mistakes and call them and say look I don't know what I'm doing Um, a lot of my board board members we meet every six weeks but I talk to all of them outside of the meetings and the more I talk to friends who have boards the more I realize how rare that Is and I'm very lucky. Um, Everyone's like, shouldn't your board be a little bit more removed? And I was like, well, I don't want them to be, but also I don't think they want to be either. I don't want them to just come together every six weeks and judge our financials. We need them to be a bit more involved. and And at the stage of my career that I'm at, I need them to be more involved too. All of them have way more experience managing staff and firing staff and performance managing and budgeting than I do. I mean, I've had one. Proper one-and-a-half proper jobs in my life. Like, the rest have been casual, cotton-on and Kmart. And, like, you, you don't know everything. You just have to learn on the go, I think.
0: <laughs> I love it. I love it. I think that... You, so, yeah so it's, it's very humbling isn't it it's like you, the way you speak you know you've got this phenomenal team beneath you You've got this board, phenomenal board and you're just sitting there going I'm not too sure but like I'm taking <laughs> this on board which I just I think it's an, a phenomenal quality to have that just I don't know everything I'm always learning I've got people who are here to support me but we'll just see where this takes us wow love it Maddie <laughs> Okay, cool. So I want to... There's two other things I want to touch on before we start to wrap up. The first one is um, last year when you were awarded the Queen's Young Leader. Now, obviously, you know, when I saw that, when you know when I realized that that was you I was like that's phenomenal it's talk to us a bit about what that felt like to get that award and then you know what that meant for you. (laughs)
1: Um, So the applying for the Queen's Young Leaders program uh, was a six-month process from submitting the first application to actually getting through to the end and it had uh, had a written application, it had a phone interview, it had my references, had to write a letter, it had Um, It had all of these different components and then they're like, right, we'll call you in November. And the Queen's Young Leaders Program is a really prestigious international program where they take 60 people from around the Commonwealth to England for 10 days and you spend half of it at Cambridge learning from phenomenal professors about how to run a business and, and how to network and all that sort of stuff. And then you spend five or six days in London meeting with businesses and entrepreneurs and and then you finish the whole 10 days with an award presentation at Buckingham Palace with Queen Elizabeth and I remember when I got the call I was sitting on the couch it was a Friday night and I was babysitting and I was by myself I'd finally put the baby to bed and I was watching Gossip Girl Um, and it was pitch black I was like it was 9 o'clock on a Friday night and I was exhausted and my phone starts ringing and you can see it's an, an England UK number and I was like oh my god this is it Um, and it was the last week in November and I answered the phone and I was trying to sound all confident on the phone and there's this lovely British woman on the end of the (laughs) phone who's like, hello Madeline, how was your day? And I was like... Yeah, okay. I was trying to, like, can you just, like, let me down easy, please? And she was like, oh, you know, we have had a we had a really high number of applications. Everyone was of a really high caliber. And I was like, okay, you're definitely trying to let me down easy. This is it. And she goes, oh, and we'd, we're really excited to have you on the program and see you at the residential in London in June. And I was like... Um, what and I may have thrown a swear word in there and um, and I was like are you sure like she's like yes I'm sure she goes oh and by the way you can't tell anyone for a week so I was like right hung up the phone and straight away called my mum and I was like mum are you sitting down she's like yeah I'm sitting down and your grandparents are here you're on loudspeaker is everything okay and I said mum I'm going to meet the queen in June And all of a sudden, all hell broke loose on the end of the phone, and um, my grandma's like, oh my God, and and it kind of didn't sink in. I told one or two other friends. Um, I felt like as long as it didn't go on to social media, nobody really knew. Um, It was announced on my birthday, which was really cool, Um, and we got a lot of media attention following the announcement, and then um, there was a lot of online modules and training that we had to do, Um, and it was hard work. And all of a sudden, June rolls around and I'm on a plane from Denmark to London. And we, I remember pulling up to Cambridge and and just being in this room with 60 incredible people from around the Commonwealth, from every country that you could think of, countries that I'd never even heard of before, which made me feel very ignorant. Um, and you spent 10 days just learning. It was exhausting. It was the best 10 days of my life. Um, the day before buckingham palace i tried on my dress and i was very lucky i had my dress given to me by ted baker um and i tried on my dress and i couldn't work out what to do with my hair i was calling mum. it was like three o'clock in the morning in australia and i was like mom i can't work out should i straighten it should i put it up should i put it down i don't know i tried on my dress and i was like my dress isn't right i was having this major freak out The morning of the palace rolled around and I called a hairdresser and I was like, please help me, I can't. So we had like three hours to get ready and I spent an hour of it walking to a hairdresser here where we were staying and getting them to curl my hair. Um, And I came back and me and another girl, Suhani from India, who was on the program with us, we got ready together. Um, And I was, it was about, I'd put my dress on, I'd put my heels on, I was ready to go. And then, and I band-aid my toes because I wore my shoes earlier in the week and ended up with, my feet were painful and I knew tonight I wouldn't get to sit down. And then I looked down at my toes and realised that I'd taken my toenail polish off because it was looking gross and I hadn't put any back on. I was wearing open toe shoes. So I sat down on the floor of my apartment in my dress, took my shoes off, quickly painted red nail polish on my toes. It was the messiest thing I've ever put. Put my band-aids back on, shoved my wet toenail polish in my shoes and went on my way. So now if you look on, look in my shoes, there's like nail polish on the inside (laughs) of my shoes, but nobody really knew because from far away it looked fine.
0: What you do for the Queen. (laughs) The
1: (laughs) things we do for the Queen. Um, And I remember getting on the bus and we drove through the gates at Buckingham Palace and it's the weirdest feeling and you're walking through the steps and you're walking through the palace and you're like am I here? Is this real? I don't know. And We had to line up. We had order we had to line up in. And then Liam Payne walks in the door from One Direction. Now, I am a One Direction fan. (laughs) Not many people in the program were. I may have lost it a little bit. Um, And he walks in the door and starts, like, saying hello to people. And we were at the back because Australia, back of the line. Um, (laughs) And he didn't get to us. And I was like, no. But then... And then we had to make our way into Buckingham Palace. We were standing, at, we were sitting in rows at the back, um, and there were a whole lot of like famous people, like Liam Payne at the front, and Prince Harry, and all these amazing people at the front, and each. And they start opening the ceremony. Sir John Major, ex-Prime Minister of the UK, gives an opening speech. Prince Harry gives a speech, and I have no idea what's going on. I'm sitting there, all of a sudden the Queen walks in, and you can't see her because she's really little. You can just see she's like it's bobbing and everyone has to stand up. And I start crying. And I've never I never thought that would be me. I never thought I would be that person who cries when the Queen walks in the door. Um, and my friend taps me and he goes, Maddie, stop, you're gonna ruin your makeup. And All of a sudden I'm standing, I'm next to go into the room where the Queen is standing and I'm fixing my hair and I don't know where things are. And I'm like, am I the right person to be here? Like, is this really where I thought I would be when I was 24? No. Um, (laughs) And we had 30 seconds with the Queen and and you do your curtsy and make sure that you're not falling over. And um, she said to me... um, hello congratulations and I said thank you it's an honour to be here and she said what do you do and I said I run an organisation called Little Dreamers that aims to recognise celebrate and amplify young carers and special siblings around Australia and hopefully around the world and I do what I do every day because I grew up as a young carer for my brother and my mum and she said to me it's a it's incredible turning a challenge into something that changes lives keep going and I said thank you you walk backwards, you can't turn your back on the Queen. Walk backwards, curtsy again, turn and walk off. It's a royal decree now, so I can't stop. Um, so, and then, and then after that, we went into this media room where I was getting interviewed by the Australian media and, and Liam Payne was there and I finally got to talk to him. Oh. And, um, and I think all the organisers knew how excited I was. And then he turned to me and said, can I ask how old you are? And I said, yes, I'm 24. And he said, so am I. And I said, yes, I know. <laughs> I was really good embarrassing myself in front of Liam Payne. Um, and, and it was this surreal moment. I remember getting on the bus leaving Buckingham Palace and we were going to a dinner at Australia House, which is a high commission in Australia. It's also where they filmed Harry Potter. It was Gringotts Bank. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, and we walk in and Prince Harry's standing at the door. I was like, oh, my God. And he is so much more beautiful in person than he is on anything. Um, and then I look at the table numbers and I'm sitting on the same table as Prince Harry. So oh, I, I walk over and I'd, I'd been introduced to Prince Harry because it was Australia House and they were trying to make the Australians seem more special. And so I'd had this very, very short conversation. And if you ever see the photo of me, I look like I'm staring up at heaven or God or <laughs> something. It's like I've got the most excited look on my face um, And we get to the table, I see where my name is, and I'm like, oh, I wonder where Prince Harry's sitting. Walk around the entire table and he's sitting next to me. Oh,
0: my Um, goodness. And then I turn
1: around and he's walking towards the table. I was like, okay, there's no (laughs) getting out of this now. Um, And I sat there for two and a half hours speaking with Prince Harry.
0: Wow. Yep. Oh, my goodness.
1: And we spoke about everything from the political situation around the world in Kenya, in America, to um, mental health, which obviously he's so passionate about, to why young people don't read newspapers anymore and why they look at online news. We spoke about everything in it. And then he left, and then we were interviewed by Channel 9 in Australian media, and I embarrassed myself completely on the news because you think you've just gone, Queen, Liam Payne, Prince Harry... News, and they haven't really given you a lot of time to process that. Um, but it changed the Queen's Young Leaders changed my life and changed the trajectory of Little Dreamers and put us on the map. And um, I am extremely lucky, and it's the gift and the program that just keeps on giving every single day.
0: Wow, Maddie, I, I don't even. <laughs> I think I need a couple of minutes to process. I'm sure everyone listening does as well. Um, wow all I can really say to that is it's like one of those fairy tale moments that you think will never happen to you but it can actually happen and so I think that's such a learning for all of us to take away you know never say it can't be us that person up the front standing next to the queen or whatever it may be up on stage speaking with whoever it is Oprah whatever whatever your dream is it can happen and you're literally the living proof so I It's
1: phenomenal. If you had asked me when I was nine years old if I thought that running Care Kids Club would have taken me to the Queen, I would have said, get stuff. (laughs) Pretty much.
0: Pretty much. <laughs> well, Maddie, I think that just draws to such a phenomenal close to our chat today. Um, I do quickly want to wrap up with your last couple of months doing the Westpac Social Change Fellow um, and then your TEDx talk last week, of course. So, just, I guess, just give us a, a brief overview of what your biggest learning was during that, that period there.
1: Um, I think going through the Westpac, fellow, Westpac Social Change Fellowship and, and travelling around the world with them was that nothing is as it seems. Everything can be picture perfect from the outside and it can look like that and it can make you feel really self-conscious and um, feel like you're not doing enough. But the minute you get up and close, it's kind of nobody's got it right. Nobody's doing things perfectly and collaboration is the key. International collaboration, we, every country and every organisation needs to be working together more because the impact that we could have is so much greater. And it's kind of what I touched on in my TED Talk a little bit, which was also around just let it go. Let it let things take their time. Um, let, let bad relationships go. Let the fear of making mistakes go. Let um, the fear of living up to someone else's expectations go and live up to your own. Um, and I think that's kind of the message that I got out of both Westpac and, and the, the TEDx was... You just need to kind of sink into the uncomfortable a little bit because it can take you to some phenomenal places and some incredible learnings that make everything that you do and all the late nights and early mornings that you put in 100% worth it
0: I actually <laughs> lost the words. So it's, it's not often that that happens um but we are so excited to see the TED talk and uh, you know your your progression has just been phenomenal so I think that before we wrap up, Maddie, I just want to firstly acknowledge you and the phenomenal work you're doing at Little Dreamers um, and also just leading our generation you know, and leading us as millennials and just your just courage to go out there from a very young age up until now. It clearly hasn't wavered; It's always been there. It really shows us that we can actually do what we want to do. Um, so we really appreciate you and acknowledge you for that.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Of course. Great. So the final question that we have here today is how we finish all of our interviews here at the peers project. And that is what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about?
1: Big question. I think it's, this is going to maybe sound really cliche, but I think it's simply pure happiness. Like every day I get up and I go to work, which is not really work and I get to change lives and the value of that for the world is incredible but the value of that for me is that I get to live a life that I never thought I would so it's all about the fact that I get to be happy every day and who gets to say that about their job it's pretty cool
0: it's pretty cool (laughs) Thanks so much, Reddy. And where can people learn, lo- learn more about you and Little Dreamers?
1: So You can go onto our website. It's www.littledreamersonline.com or follow us on Facebook or Instagram as Little Dreamers Australia or on Twitter as Little Dreamers.
0: Love it. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Piers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify or any app where podcasts are played and leave us a review. We produce with passion. And it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers.